Welcome to Covenant's Pulpit Ministry. Covenant Evangelical Free Church believes that the Bible is the Word of God and that God's Word is vital for life-transforming Christianity. We trust that you will grow to know the Word of God and more importantly, the God of the Word as you hear this message today. May God bless you as you open your heart to His Word. Today we will finish up Daniel chapter 3. Have you ever encountered situations in your life where you are tempted to compromise on your Christian faith and convictions? Go on. No, we're also holy. We don't face all these things, is it? Do you recall situations in your life where you had to bow to pressures of your boss and friends and colleagues and, and, and you're tempted to compromise your faith? Yes, surely this is very common for every believer in this world because it's ruled by a very, very different system. And therefore, the price of integrity can be very, very high. Sometimes it's a seeming white lie or blatant lie to protect ourselves or someone else. Other times, it may be an ethical, legal compromise at work, again, to protect ourselves or make the company or the department look good. And yet there also could be spiritual compromises that we make because we hide our Christian identity so that we don't stand out in the crowd, so that we don't have to be accountable. Or we can behave like anyone else and therefore you go undercover. Now, there are many other scenarios that can compromise our faith, but you get my point. So the question that we need to ask ourselves seriously as we look at Daniel chapter 3 is that will we stand up for Jesus and our faith? Are we willing to face the music and pay the price to follow Jesus when our faith is tested in the furnace like the three gentlemen? Will we be tried and true? Try to put yourself in the shoes of these three gentlemen in Daniel 3. One commentator said these words, these stubborn fools were disobeying the royal decree. They knew that everyone was supposed to conform to it. So with death staring them in the face, how could they ever think of disobeying? Didn't they know that everyone was watching them and they could not possibly escape the fiery furnace? How could they think of giving up their high office, the royal favour, and even their lives for the sake of the eccentric religious beliefs. But they did. They did. They became such a model and inspiration for millions of Christians down the centuries. They demonstrated such an unflinching conviction, unwavering confidence, and undeterrable consecration. Now, some of us might be wondering at this point in time, hey, where on earth is Daniel? Right? He seemed to have disappeared from the chapter. Now, we don't really know. Scholars speculate that he might be on some kind of overseas assignments and therefore not found. Well, right time to be away, yeah? So, we don't really know. So, however, we will focus on the rest of the narrative account in Daniel chapter 3. And essentially, it is a continuation from last Sunday's sermon where we saw true worship being tested. And then today we will complete it with the title, Tested, Tried, and True. So please pray with me as we ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we are aware that there are churches and Christians around the world today they are persecuted for their faith and they will suffer and even die for it. We pray for these brothers and sisters that your sovereign and mighty hand will protect them and deliver them from the hands of the oppressors and that the oppressors might encounter the living God and turn to you in faith. We pray for ourselves as Singaporean believers that in our first world daily trials and tests of life, we will be found faithful and true so that we can bear witness to our Saviour and Lord Jesus Christ. Deliver us from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life so that we might experience the fullness of your love and to do your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In this remaining account in Daniel chapter 3 from verse 19 to verse 30, you will see two dramatic movements. The first movement from unrestrained arrogance to uncontrollable rage. The second movement from uncontrollable rage to utter amazement. Let's look at the storyline. First, from unrestrained arrogance to uncontrollable rage. Please open up your Bible because I won't be showing the verses on the screen, all right? So open up your Bible. I'll be reading from verse 19 to 23. Daniel 3, 19 to 23, reading from the ESV Bible. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their clothes, their tunics, their heads and their other garments and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar must be gleaming with great pride, having built such a humongous statue that was inspired by his dream. Now he probably said to himself, I don't just want a golden head. I want a golden statue, a huge one, a big one. Out of proportion, never mind. We don't know for sure if this was an image of some Babylonian idol or an image of himself. But we can surmise that there was such an unrestrained arrogance. I made it. All gold-plated. I did it. And, and you could imagine the dazzling, super-dazzling and glaring light that bounces off this golden statue during the midday blazing sun. And I think people could hardly look at it as they bow down to the statue. And there you see King Nebuchadnezzar with folded arms. And when the music plays, thousands and thousands of people will stop doing whatever they are doing and they bow in worship to the image. Unrestrained, arrogance. King Nebuchadnezzar but could not in a million years ever conceive that these three army ghosts would destroy this glorious moment of worship. Never mind if the entire kingdom was bowing to him 
or the statue except these three jokers. One is already too much for him. So to try to save his face and to against these undefeated runs, he gave them a chance to recant. Hopefully that will save him some face. But no, these men were a demon. They were totally unafraid of him. Totally unafraid of the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar couldn't believe his ears. This is where the first dramatic movement occurred. In verse 19, the Bible tells us, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. From arrogance, he moved right now to this uncontrollable rage. The New Living Translation paraphrased it as his face became distorted with rage. The Message Bible says his face purple with anger. Now note these three things he did in this uncontrollable rage. First, verse 19, part B. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Now this is meant to be taken figuratively. Why? He wanted the hottest furnace ever on Babylon land. He was so hot right now. Now you begin to wonder which is hotter, the fiery furnace or the king's rage. Now depending on what kind of uh, uh, the furnace is for, scholars believe that the temperature is usually kept between 900 to 1,100 degrees centigrade. Alright? Now in case you're wondering how hot is our crematorium heat, uh, it's 900 to 1,000 degrees centigrade. That's how hot it is. That means when you go in, all comes out will be bones here. Yeah. Alright? And so, and so this, is, this is what they are. They heated it seven times hotter, and so the temperature must have gone even higher than that. Alright? So really, really a, a very bad thing if you were to go inside there. Now, secondly, verse 20. He ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego and cast them to the burning fire. And we all go, come on, King Nebu. You didn't think these guys are going to escape, right? I mean, you don't need the Arnold Schwarzenegger or you know, the, now the Korean, don't know what, virtual reality show, the physical 100, those kind of men uh, to, hold, to hold these three harmless scholars. It's an overkill, Nibo. But show us how uncontrollable his rage was. Finally, in verse 22, because of the king's urgent to just kill them immediately, the furnace overheated and the flame, the Bible says, of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Now this is very sad, isn't it? All these innocent, strong warriors of the Babylonian army had to die at the hands of an arrogant and an angry king. Now all these three orders show us the incontrollable rage of King Nebuchadnezzar. But it also showed us the impossibility of survival for these three men. So as we take one step backwards, and then you look at the overall plot and drama unfolding, the furnace was obviously large enough for a few men to be walking around in the fire. And then since the Jews fell into the furnace, the opening must have been on the top somehow. All right? And so like fish tanks in an aquarium, there must be a, some kind of a side window panel where the king could watch these guys burn. So down went these three innocent men of faith into the fiery furnace and they would have melted instantly into nothing. Game over. 
the first dramatic movement from unrestrained arrogance to uncontrollable rage. And these men were tested. Brothers and sisters, as we pause to reflect on this, these three army goals were tested over and over and over again. Think with me, chapter 1, what test did they have to go through? The food test, remember? Chapter 2, the impossibility of interpreting, telling what the king's dream is and then to tell him what the interpretation is all about. Impossible, they were tested again. And this time round, the crazy trial by fire. It is one thing after another. Although we know that each chapter was probably separated by times and season. It didn't happen uh, uh, sequentially, so to speak. So we see that they were tested over and over and over again in a foreign land. And the Bible tells us these guys came out tried and true. They were men of steel. The unflinging conviction, unwavering confidence, and the undeterrable consecration were out of this world. We will not serve your gods, nor worship the golden image that you have set up. I read accounts like this and I go, wow, where did this guy come from? In Singapore, we find it very hard to serve God. Don't talk about dying for Jesus. We're dying in our work. We're dying in all the demands of life. There is no time. There is no time to do what God wants us to do. But in reality, too, that some of us face real struggle in what I call first world, our first world problems. And we might be facing waves and waves of temptation and various trials of life. You may be the target of someone's arrogance and rage, and everything seems to be turning against you. And this could be the hottest fire and trial that you've ever faced. You felt bound, you're held down by strong hands, strong men, and you are falling down, down, down into the fiery furnace. And of course, we scream and we cry out, God, what is happening? Why is all these things happening to me? If we are caught in this mess, Daniel 3 has been written for you. And the words of this man in Daniel 3, 16 to 18, because in chapter 3, this is the core of the message, the biblical message. And this is for our discipleship and imitation. So going back to chapter 3, verse 16 to 18, let me read from the Message Bible, which reads, Your threat means nothing to us. If you throw us in the fire, the God we serve can rescue us from your roaring furnace and anything else you might cook up, O king. But even if he doesn't, it wouldn't make a bit of difference, O king. We still wouldn't serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. And of course, we go, wow, what courage and faith. You know, the early church father, his name is Polycarp, lived somewhere in 55 AD to 150. A disciple of John the Apostle was arrested and he was martyred for his faith. He was given a chance to recant and to renounce Jesus, but he boldly proclaimed, 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? They threatened him again. We'll feed you to the wild beasts. Polycarp answered, Bring them on, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt what is evil. Wow. Then he says, We will burn you with fire. Polycarp replied, You threaten me with fire which burns for a little while 
and is soon extinguished. You do not know the coming fire of judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. What are you waiting for? Do as you wish. Wow! What amazing courage and faith Polycarp had. But in this case, bear in mind in history, God didn't deliver Polycarp. He was burned. He died. But he showed church faith and courage. You see, in the face of unrestrained arrogance and uncontrollable rage of ungodly people, will we also demonstrate the same courage and faith like this man? The drama continues to unfold in Daniel 3. Suddenly, the narrative bursts into the second dramatic movement. We see the king turn right now from uncontrollable rage to utter amazement. Let me read from verse 24 to 27. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counsellors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counsellors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not sink, their clothes were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. The scripture tells us quite immediately. Remember, he was so angry. Now King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, amazed. He rose in haste. Right? And it was very dramatic to say that he leaped to his feet in amazement. Now, his previous countenance of uncontrollable rage right now turns to utter amazement. It's a surprising twist of event. He didn't expect this to happen. Now try to imagine a series of eye-rubbing moments. The first, look at verse 25. I see four men. Huh? He rubbed his eyes. Four men? I only throw in three men. How come there's a fourth? His counsellors also rub their eyes and quickly replied to him, Yeah, king, you're right. We throw in three, but how come there are four? Second eye-rubbing moment. Verse 25. They were unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. I don't know how that happened. I mean, the ropes are all gone, the chains are all gone, but they were all okay. Now, this is very strange, right? They should have melted instantly, but here they are walking around unharmed like the memories of our school campfire days in school. Ah, this must have really messed up King Nebuchadnezzar's brain big time. And then finally, verse 25 again. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So we ask ourselves, hmm, who is this son of a gods? Now from the Aramaic language, because this segment was written, a good chunk of them was written in Aramaic, the clause literally reads, and the appearance of the fourth resembles a son of gods. Now son of gods, you notice, is rendered in the plural. 
And therefore, he helped us to realize that King Nebuchadnezzar was thinking of a pantheon of gods in the Babylonian religious system. He was not thinking of the one true God, Jehovah, Yahweh. And therefore, he was not making any confession in whatever form of allegiance to Yahweh. So who is still the son of uh, the God? Well, the early church fathers and some conservative theologians think that this refers to the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, the Christophany, the, the Christ pre-incarnate and, and showed himself before he appeared in the New Testament. Now, whoever this is, what we can say is that this passage does not identify who this fourth person is. And therefore, we don't have to quiver over it because whatever it is, whoever it is, it was God who saved his faithful and loyal servants from the fire. It is totally unexpected in my view. And I think these three men were more prepared to die than to be saved. So with utter amazement that a more powerful God in his in his, in his worldview has appeared. Right? King Nebuchadnezzar now called out to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out of the fire, come out of the furnace. Now instantaneously, everyone began to crowd around and they held their breath. And then out came the Marvel character, the human torch. No, it's in. <laughs> out came the three men, unharmed by the fire, every last hair and fibre unburned, unscorched, and not even burned smell. I wish we go to a Korean barbecue and we come out still smelling good. But it's not possible. You are smelly after that. A total miracle. So this man was severely tested, tried, and they survived. Glory be to God. The second movement ended. And then King Nebuchadnezzar then spoke from verse 28 to 30. The scripture reads, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I made the decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So what happened? While well, King Nebuchadnezzar rewarded this man for worshipping their one true God and trust their life to die for their God. You could say that the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego shines brighter than the flames of the furnace. Now we must remember again what motivated this man before they were thrown into the fire. I come back to the core verses of chapter 3, verse 16 to 18 in the Message Bible. Your threat means nothing to us. If you throw us in the fire, the God we serve can rescue us from your roaring furnace and anything else you might cook up, O king. But even if it doesn't, it wouldn't make a bit of difference, O king. We still wouldn't serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Brothers and sisters, let's pause and apply this. I read a Bible commentary this week, a preaching commentary. And what he said was so crystal clear, I borrowed it for our application. 
This is what he said. He says, the historical narrative illustrates two biblical strengths of faith. One, faith is obedience to God's sovereign commands. Right? That's what these three guys did. They knew the Ten Commandments. We will not bow down to any idols, nor we carve any image to bow down to it. They knew faith was obeying God's sovereign commands. Secondly, the second strand of biblical faith, faith is trusting in God's sovereign will. On one hand, believing, yeah, my God can deliver. However, if He doesn't, never mind. Now, that kind of biblical faith is incredible. It's incredible because there's a tendency for us to shift either to this side or to this side all the time. So he went on to say this beautifully. He says, Biblical faith has the assurance to say, I know my God can deliver me. But it also has the submission to say, but even if it does not, I will still trust Him. It's like Job who says, Though He slay me, yet I will trust Him. I will hope in Him. He went on to say that many Christians are sometimes afraid to believe that God will deliver them. Now, this is where I really congratulate my charismatic and Pentecostal friends. Because there's something in them that really believe my God will deliver me, but our evangelical don't have. Like. We, we, we somehow lack in that. At the same time, it's very important for us. He says we need to also have this submission to believe even if it doesn't it's okay with me, I will worship God. And that's why he says some Christians are afraid to believe that God can deliver them because of the disappointment they will experience if He does not. That's true. That's true. We are afraid to pray. There was a gentleman who came down for the altar call some weeks back. He said he hurt his back. So I prayed, Lord. Pray for healing. One, two weeks later, he, he, he told me, Pastor, you know, I went back to the doctors and the doctors said, What happened? The pain is, is, is no longer there. It's something for us to grow in, to believe God can deliver, but at the same time, learn to trust in Him. And finally, he ended by saying, it seems that very few Christians can have this firm belief that He can and will deliver while maintaining a submissive attitude to His sovereign will if it differs from our requests. We need to understand that faith is not a rabbit's food. The American way of saying it's not a good luck charm. And God is not a genie who is bound to do for us whatever we want. There's a lot for us to learn here. My God can deliver, therefore we pray in faith. Believing He can. At the same time, a submissive spirit. What if He doesn't? I will worship Him nevertheless. There's a tension that we need to hold on this side of eternity. But I say to you, for us generally as evangelical covenant EFC, pray for healing. Be bold. Pray. Then you can see God work. Ma. Because generally, we are quite happy to say, Lord, if it doesn't happen, never mind. I will worship you. I hope that's true. Let me share a true story that happened amongst us. One of our church members wrote this as a testimony. So proud of him. He said, Before I was a Christian, I used to visit Hostess KTV for business entertainment. After I accepted the faith and was baptized, the Lord convicted me to be released from this bondage. So I made up my mind one day to stop going to church places. It was at this time a very senior vice president 
became my boss. Unfortunately, he loves to frequent such places almost on a daily basis. To make matters worse, he expects his subordinates to join him regardless if they want or they don't want. He made it clear that those of you who don't, you don't belong to my inner circle and you'll be treated differently. When he realised that I do not join him in such parties, he called me one day to let me know my career growth path as a director will be halted and my team members will be victimised if I avoid such parties. I shared with him I found a faith and I decided my family and I, and for my sake, this is the right thing to do, to stop going to church places. He sneered at me and walked away. He continued to text me whenever he had church parties, and I continued to give him excuses why I can't go, or go to very, 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 very late, and when he is drunk, I will sneak out and go home. This went on for months, and I was very miserable. I draw the line one day when he called me on a Saturday and expected me to join him that night. I told him my weekends are sacred for my family and I will not turn up. He hung up his phone. Then the nightmare at work began. He would deliberately pick on me on everything, even when my team and I did well. I felt terrible throughout the period, but felt worse for my team members suffering from this treatment because of my disobedience to the VP. Despite the misery, I hung around because I really felt I needed to protect my men. These were many occasions. There were many occasions I asked the Lord for guidance. And I can feel the Lord telling me that my obedience to Him is most important. Eventually, I broke and I decided to resign from this company that I really want to stay on. I shared the news with the HR director and for some strange reason, he asked me to hold on to my resignation letter. Then he told me that he would find me a new role with a new department and eventually that happened. The VP knew about my transfer and tried always to sabotage it but thankfully, he was unsuccessful. My team members were able to find a better place to be over in the next few months in other departments. I'm very thankful for the Lord's conviction on me to be freed from a bondage and lead me to a better pasture. He concluded by saying the song, Trust and Obey, says it all. Trust and Obey, says it all. What a man of courage and faith. Friends, sisters, Faith is obedience to God's commandment. Faith is also trusting in God's sovereign will. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego stood for. That's what Polycarp stood for. That's what our church members stood for. Is that what we will stand for in the face of persecution, trials and tests? Let me conclude the sermon for this morning. I brought you two narratives, two dramatic movements in the storyline. From unrestrained arrogance to uncontrollable rage, and from uncontrollable rage to utter amazement, to surface for us two applicational truths, two biblical strengths of faith or application. Faith is obedience to God's command, but faith is also trusting God's sovereign will. Now, if we can ask God to convict us, strengthen us by this truth, then we will find the strength to face and overcome the tests and trials of life different from the world. Different. So that we might emerge victorious in Christ. Tested. Tried. True. I read this story this week and I will close. 
story was told of a Christian miner who was injured at a young age, became an invalid and spent the rest of his life watching the world go by. He saw how other men prospered, how other men raised families and had grandchildren, but he only watched his body weathered, his house crumbled, and his life wasted away. One day, this bed-bound miner was quite old, and a younger man came to visit him. He said, I hear that you believe in God and claim that He loves you. How can you believe in such things after all that has happened to you? Don't you sometimes doubt God? The old man hesitated and then smiled. Yes, it's true. Sometimes Satan comes calling on me in this fallen down house of mine. He sits next there by my bed where you are sitting now and he will point out to the window to those men I once worked with who are now still strong and active and he asks, does Jesus love you? Then Satan casts a jeering glance around my tattered room as he points to the five homes my friends across the street have and asks again, does Jesus love you? At last, Satan points to the grandchild of a friend of mine, a man who has everything that I don't. And Satan waits for the tear in my eye before he whispers to my ears, does Jesus really love you? The young man asks, yes, so what do you say when Satan speaks to you that way? The old miner said, I take Satan by the hand. I lead him in my mind to a hill far away called Calvary. Then I point out to him the torn, tortured brow, to the near-pierced hand and feet, and the spear-wounded side. Then I say, Satan, you tell me, doesn't Jesus love me? Calvary is the measure of the Saviour's love for us. There are things that happen to us, sometimes there's no answer. But the cross is the warrant of confidence in God's love, despite lifelong heartache. When our focus remains on the cross, our faith will not waver, though troubles and challenges come and human answers fail. I read this and I go, Lord, very few of us have gone through what this guy went through. Yes, there are troubles and trials of life, but nothing like what this guy has gone through. We are reminded that Jesus, 2,000 years ago, went into the fiery furnace on the cross. Remember, He didn't need to be there. He chose to be there. And for one reason... Jesus loves us enough to jump into the fire with us, to save us and to protect us from the eternal flames of judgment one day. So my friends, when Satan comes and says to you in your trials, does Jesus love you? Then you just point him to Calvary and say to him, doesn't Jesus love me? Let's pray together. As we sit in these closing moments, let's allow this song 
to minister to our hearts. A song that we learn when we are all children. Jesus loves me. This I know. Just take it all in. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. continue to play allow me to address two groups of people quickly first I want to speak to those who are non-Christians you are here worshipping with us but you are not a believer then I want to urge you this morning to invite Jesus into your life tell me do you know of any religion in this world whose founder and maker died for you for humanity the truth there isn't only Jesus did. And why? Because He loves you. Because He knows you can't save yourself from the curse and the judgment of sin in our lives. Because He knows there is a judgment after death and we get to spend eternity with Him. This is God's gift of love to you. Will you invite Him into your life? If you are not a Christian and you say, yes, I want to know this Jesus, then right now, in this simple prayer, follow after me quickly in your hearts. Just say these words, Dear Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I invite you into my heart today to save me. Thank you for your unconditional love for me. If you're not a believer and you have said this prayer quietly in your heart, I want to pray for you. Just quickly lift up your right hand. I want to pray for you. No eyes are looking around. Everybody is bowed down. If you have said this prayer in your heart, just lift up your right hand. I want to pray for you. Anyone? 
If not after the service, you still could come. The altar ministers and the pastors will show you how to begin this relationship with Jesus. Now for the rest of us, believers, worshippers of God, perhaps some of you are going through the fiery furnace due to various reasons, financial, medical, relational, mental, etc. Yes, they are exceedingly painful and difficult. And therefore, it's so easy in such times to doubt God, to think He doesn't love us. But the truth, Jesus gave Himself fully to you. He wants to walk with you. Now you've got to stop running away. Come to Jesus this morning. Say to Him, Lord, I need You. Your command and Your will are sovereign. I know You can deliver me. But even if You do not, I will still trust in You. So my friends, whatever challenges you might be facing, will you count on Jesus who loves you enough to die for you? and will give you the wisdom how you may deal with all the trials and challenges of life. If you are going through some particular trials and tests of life, I want to pray for you. Just lift up your right hand right now. I'll pray for you. Yes. Nobody's looking around between you and God. Lift up your right hand. I want to pray for you. Whatever trials and tests you might be going through, Almighty God, you see these hands, you are not far away. Would you draw near and grant, dear Father, a deep dependence, a deep drawing near, so that you may show us the way, Lord, the way to you, the way to the future. Hard as might be, dear Lord, that we might insist on walking only in your ways. Help my brothers and sisters, dear Lord, as they do so. You may put down your hands. Lord, today we thank you that we can partake of the Holy Communion and remember Jesus. We're glad you had spent some time listening to God's Word and we hope that the message has ministered to you. You can visit us at www.cefc.org.sg for more sermon titles. God bless you in your spiritual pilgrimage ahead.